This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Longtime host of NPR's Morning Edition, Bob Edwards, died on Saturday from heart failure and complications of bladder cancer. He was 76. At the end of his final Morning Edition, Edwards had this to say. I have been hosting programs on NPR for 30 years, five and a half years on All Things Considered, 24 years and six months on Morning Edition. But this program is the last I shall host. Bob Edwards was commonly thought of as having the voice we woke up to. And his 2004 removal as an NPR host did not go over well with listeners. An avalanche of letters followed, most in protest of the decision. After a brief stint as a senior correspondent for NPR, he went on to host his own interview show on Sirius XM. During his career, Edwards won a Peabody, a DuPont Columbia Award for Journalism, and an Edward R. Murrow Award. Terry first spoke with Edwards in 1993 about his book, Fridays with Red. It was about his long on-air relationship with the great sportscaster Red Barber. But Barber wouldn't just talk about sports. He would often spend more time talking about his camellias, his cats, and the weather. Terry asked Edwards if early on he was panicked by the sidetracks and tried to make Red stick to sports. I panicked early on because uh, Red would turn it around. Red would ask me questions. Red would throw me curveballs. I wasn't ready for any of that. I was ready for an interview. But Red got me back into just relaxing and and enjoying the conversation. But it took years. Uh, I wasn't comfortable with it for a long time. I dreaded it um, because uh, I I wasn't willing to, to just relax and be myself. It took Red to teach me to do that once again. So, but, but now early on when Red Barber would go off track and talk about the camellias or what the weather was like in, in Tallahassee, would, would you nervously try to bring him back into focus about sports, the subject of the commentary? Sometimes, but sometimes I'd just do it for fun um, because, you know, Red would go off about the flowers and, and just for effect I'd say, hey, how about those Dodgers? Uh, just to get the laugh, because I knew he was going to continue to go on about the flowers and the cats and all that. And I was enjoying it, too. Um, It also played very well with the audience. They loved it. They loved hearing about the weather in Tallahassee and the squirrels and the mockingbirds and the whole thing. Uh, And I wasn't going to argue with what my listeners liked. (laughs) No way. If that's what they wanted to hear from Red, fine, we'll talk about cats. Um, How did he start calling you Colonel? Well, he, uh, he called me a lot of things. He called me Robert, R-O-B-B-I-T is <laughs> right. how I spell that, Robert. But he heard that I was a Kentucky colonel, as what? most Kentuckians are, and probably you are too, Terry. If not, what, what, we can take what, care of that. What is a Kentucky colonel? Oh, it's our little honorific in Kentucky. Um, a member of the colonels will um, write to the governor and ask that the governor commission uh, a friend or an associate, and uh, it's no big deal. They send off the, the commission. Various states have this. In Maryland, they make you a um, admiral of the Chesapeake. And in Indiana, they make you a sagamore of the Wabash. Well, in Kentucky, they make you a colonel. So he started calling me Colonel. It, it was the Southern thing, I think. 
Now, how'd you feel about it at first before it really stuck? Well, when Red Barber gives you a nickname, I think it's a compliment. And, you know, he gave a lot of the Dodgers their nicknames. Uh, so I didn't think it was a bad deal. And, and when you're a pretty straight-laced news anchor, I think it's kind of nice to have a nickname. <laughs> you won't take yourself too seriously, then. In a way, having a nickname for that spot gave you, uh, in a way, the ability to have two different personalities. You know, one for the news and one for your chats with Red. That's right. Suddenly the colonel would be there. <laughs> That's right. Your, your alter ego. <laughs> when the Gulf War started, there was a debate at NPR about whether Red Barber should be preempted because of the solemnity of, of you know, the gravity of, of the war. Was there really time in the broadcast to, to talk about what game was coming up that week? You argued that Red should be on. Why did you think he should be on? And tell us about, about that first broadcast that he did during the war. I didn't think that we should change anything just because um, there was a war on. You know, there's a place for Red Barber, and Red Barber served. He uh, was not in uniform himself, but he was very, very proud of his work during World War II during uh, blood drives. Um, when Red Barber sent out the call that uh, the Brooklyn Red Cross needed uh, blood donors, they lined around the block. And then Manhattan was calling him up and saying, would you please send some over here? So he made another announcement, and they were filled to capacity in Manhattan. He was very proud of that. He was very proud of his USO tours uh, going through Vietnam. So, you know, Red had a place, and he knew the context of sports and society and said so. So his commentary that day was all about the history of, of sport at time of war and whether it was appropriate to play games and whether it wasn't and under what circumstances. And he ended it all with the uh, 90th Psalm, which has to do with the folly of war. It, it was just a magnificent performance, I thought. Was, was this the first time that you'd lost someone who you had that kind of close professional relationship with? Professionally, I guess, yes. I mean, certainly people I've interviewed over the years have died, but not... See, I, th I thought of Red as my surrogate father. Um, you know, Donald Hall, the poet and essayist, says that, that baseball is fathers playing catch with sons, and I thought that's what Red and I were doing for 12 years over the radio. We were playing catch. We were throwing the ball back and forth, and sometimes he'd zing one in there, and sometimes he'd, he'd throw a knuckler and see if I could handle it. Um, and I miss that. And it's just like when my father died, and, and there were things I wanted to tell him, and I'd even go to the phone <laughs> and realize I can't talk to him anymore. And that's, that's how it is with Red. With Red Barber, you wrote an obituary that you gave on the air. How, what did you do when you were trying to find a comfortable tone to take for the interview so that it would have your sentiment without being heavy on the sentimentality? Well, I knew what the last line was, and I started with the last line, and I knew how much time I had. So I also knew I had to catch a plane pretty soon. So I just put paper in the typewriter and fired away. What was the last line that you knew? The colonel says goodbye. I'm interested in talking with you a little bit about your work at NPR. You were the first on-air host of Morning Edition, but you weren't supposed to be the first host of the show. <laughs> no, the um, program had been a year in the planning. And uh, I'll tell you who the hosts were, because they've done right well for themselves. Uh, Pete Williams, now of NBC News. Oh, well, former, <laughs> better known to most people as the Pentagon spokesperson during the war. That's during right. During the Gulf War. And Mary Tillotson of CNN. 
and they were the hosts. The program, they didn't get around to doing a pilot for the stations to hear until very close to the, the date that they were due to go on. Maybe it was a week or two before. And what the program they put out for the stations to hear was just a disaster. Um, I think the best way to describe it, it was very chatty. Um, it was nothing that a listener who was used to all things considered uh, would like. <laughs> and NPR did something that it had never done before and hasn't done too many times since. It fired people. It fired the executive producer, the producer, and both hosts. And I've always thought that was unfair to the hosts because I think they were doing the program that they were told to do. But as it turns out, the hosts did all right for themselves. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're making serious bucks today. So now how did the job fall to you after everybody else was fired? Well, they had no hosts, and they were still committed to going on the air on November 5th, 1979, and they had told the stations that, and the stations had promoted the program. Oh, big new program coming November 5th, you know. So they had to put a program on. And so they came to me. I was doing All Things Considered with Susan then. And... Um, they asked me to do it for 30 days. I said, do it for 30 days until we get a new host. And I said, okay. I'm thinking, well, hey, they'll owe me one. <laughs> <laughs> Fool that I was. <laughs> and, uh, and 30 days has turned into 14 years. We write in your new book that initially you and Susan Stamberg resented the development of Morning Edition because you knew that show would be competing with your show, All Things Considered, for limited resources at NPR. Well, of course, we were top dog. You know, we didn't want any competition in-house. And so when the, the pilot bombed, we just kind of smiled. <laughs> didn't reflect on us. <laughs> was there friction between your new show, Morning Edition, and your old show, All Things Considered, when Morning Edition actually went on the air? Well, of course there was. Um, the um, report, We didn't have that many reporters in those days. And this new program was supposed to get along without reporters, without the, the staff that we had reporting for All Things Considered. Well, you know. How long did that last? <laughs> of course we were going to use those reporters. And um, that meant that uh, if they were filing for us, maybe they didn't have time to do a story for All Things Considered that day. So, yeah. Uh, plus the attention goes to the new guy. It's the newer program that uh, management stakes its reputation to. So um, we were the fair-haired boy, the new program. When you were on All Things Considered, co-anchoring with Susan Stamberg, you were sometimes, in a way, in the role of a straight man. Yeah, it was good training for Red. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, does your, how did your on-air personality change, do you think, when you were on your own? Um, it changed a lot. Uh, I worked very well with Susan, and we had, we had it down. We knew each other's strengths and each other's faults, and we could cover the faults and play to the strengths. But... With Susan, she's so good. She's just so good that, that I didn't have to extend myself very much at all. I could always fall back on her. Um, and, you know, working with Susan was marvelous. I enjoyed it. I have very happy memories of it. But um, every now and then you got to make a change. And this was, you know, I needed to grow. And it, it helped me grow. And um, goodness knows it wasn't the hours that were attractive. <laughs> but what, what are your hours? I get up at 1.30 in the morning, and I'm in the office by 2.30, and I go home at noon or 12.30. 
That's a long day. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's actually a long night and a short day. (laughs) I go to sleep at 7, and my children tuck me in, and um, it's tough. They get to stay up, (laughs) and I have to go to bed, and uh, that's the part I don't like. What hours do you have for family time? I get the afternoons, of course, which is real nice in the summer uh, when children are there. I think in some ways, though, I might get more time with my children than uh, a nine-to-five dad because uh, they come home exhausted and after they've had dinner, uh, the children have maybe a nine o'clock bedtime and there's you know a very brief window in there. I've got them in the late afternoons and for you know, an hour in the early evening. So I think um, possibly I do better that way. Do you change your hours on the weekend? Yes, I'm a normal person on the weekend. Don't you have jet lag all the time then? Yes, exactly right. That's exactly what it feels like. It's permanent jet lag. You've said that one of the drawbacks of getting up in the middle of the night is that you're driving through the streets just as the bars are closing. Mm -hmm. And you've had some pretty close calls. Yeah, I've had some that were too close. (laughs) I got hit one night by a drunk driver. Um, On the way to work? Ran a red light, yep. And she uh, was a 19-year-old. And she um, had a fight with her boyfriend or something. I don't know, she was drunk and just blasted me right in the passenger side. And a brand new car. I was still on the dealer's tank of gas. Whoa. Yeah, totaled it. <laughs> <laughs> no, were you hurt? No. No, it's, it's a tank. And um, I always wear a seatbelt. So. Did you go to work afterwards? Not that day. <laughs> I was shook up. But um, the next day I did. But I see something every night. I see people with no headlights on. I see people going the wrong way on a one-way street. It's astonishing how many drunk drivers there are out there. Three times on an interstate, I've had people come at me on the wrong side of an interstate. That's really scary. Because then you have to guess real fast, left or right, which way am I going? And you realize that you're trying to second-guess a drunk. (laughs) There's no logic there. What was your very first radio job? Or I shouldn't use the word job, maybe. <laughs> maybe you didn't get paid at the very beginning. Like most people in public radio didn't get paid when they started. I hung out at a tiny little station in New Albany, Indiana, a commercial station that um, was right across the river from Louisville, but I don't think the signal reached there unless the breeze was blowing right. Uh, it was uh, a daytimer and only a 1,000 watts, and um, I went on the air. I hung out every day for a couple of months, and the police came in one day and busted the guy on the air for non-support. And that's how I got into radio. (laughs) I sat in his chair and (laughs) took over his program. Went in paternity support? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a variation on the... uh the, uh, the 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 would be leading lady where the real leading lady gets a broken leg. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what was the first show? Uh, well, it was spinning records. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, doing the what DJ kind of music? Thing. Uh, easy listening. Easy listening. The world's most beautiful music. Oh no! You, you, did you like that music? Well, I jazzed it up a bit. Um, I um, I threw in some Ellington and Basie. <laughs> uh huh. They were, you know, Sinatra was about as hip as they got. Um, but I put in a little more up-tempo stuff. What, what was the worst stuff you had to play? Oh, Matabani, I guess. Very syrupy stuff, uh, you know, with the, the peeling violins and very lush arrangements. And all that. 
And what voice did you use to back announce Mantovani? Oh, I was ordered to use this very, very, um, what? I, I was pontificating. I was, you know, it was very formal. <laughs> very, very, very formal. Um, <laughs> but that, that was orders. That, that went with the music, so that's what I had to, to do. I couldn't be myself. And did, that, did, that just never works. You have to be yourself on radio. Now you were drafted in 1969, and you ended up anchoring army broadcasts of the 6 o'clock news in Seoul. Right. How did you get the job? Was this the first time you were on the air, or was this a- after your middle-of-the-road stint? Uh, I was terrified of the army and because of the war, and um, I didn't want any part of it. So what I did was, um, it, it's the one time that you should not be shy when you're drafted. Um, I told them I was Cronkite. I told them <laughs> if they didn't have me in broadcasting, boy, were they missing out. I mean, gosh, what a waste of my talent. <laughs> what I was trying to do is you know, keep from fighting a Nam. And it worked. I didn't even go to uh, army school. Right after basic training, they uh, had me doing um, training tapes in Georgia and later the news in Korea. How objective was the army broadcast of the news? They kept their hands off of us because they didn't want to be seen as being heavy-handed. They censored us only where uh, Korean news was... uh, uh, When I was doing something about Korea, they would censor that because they wanted to be diplomatic with the host country. Well, the guys over there didn't want to know about Korea anyway. They wanted to know what was going on in the United States to the point where um, the Pentagon Papers were the hot story of the time. Mm. And I did a documentary on it, and the Army didn't even read it. Hmm. I mean, they left me completely alone because they didn't want to seem um, heavy-handed. Uh, and it didn't concern Korea, so they didn't care. <laughs> if I'd been a Nam, it would have been different. Did you wear a uniform for the broadcast? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, wore my green suit, and I was Army Specialist Bob Edwards. Now, how did you get to National Public Radio? I was fired from the mutual broadcasting system. For? Union activity. Uh-huh. Were you, were you a, a, an organizer or a foreman? Was or? and still am. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm a national vice president of AFTRA, the oh. American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the fellow that was running Mutual was getting rid of everybody. He was a big union man. Um, I say man. There weren't women then. Um, and uh, so when I was fired, I just picked up the phone book and called... Everything that had radio in its name. <laughs> I didn't know much about NPR, but um, they brought me over here and put me on the air that night. Doing? The 8 o'clock news insert within All Things Considered. So you started off as a newscaster. Uh-huh. And how long did it take till you were co-anchor? Oh, about six months. And that was uh, February 74 when I started doing the newscasts and August when uh, I started hosting. It's very impressive the way you can hit the time clock and get out of an interview just in the nick of time. Um, what are the polite ways <laughs> of telling somebody that their time is up and you got to get out? <laughs> oh, you mean when we're live? Yeah, when you're live. And they're running long? Right. And you thought you were going to get the 30-second answer and you get the minute-and-a-half answer? Yes. Well, I remember once 
when I asked one of those answers, one of those questions, and the person had been giving me nice, neat little 30-second answers, and then uh, when I took a chance <laughs> and thought I'd work one more in, he said, and there are five reasons for this. <laughs> and I said, and we'd like to hear each and every one of them, unfortunately. Uh, but I think that's the one time I got out of it with any grace at all. <laughs> Usually it's, um, Senator, sen- sen- uh, Senator, we really have to, Senator, goodbye, Senator. It's 19 minutes past the Well, Bob Edwards, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for talking with us. A pleasure for me, too. Thank you. Bob Edwards speaking with Terry Gross in 1993. The longtime host of NPR's Morning Edition died on Saturday at the age of 76. Coming up, we'll hear another interview he recorded with Terry in 2004 after his book about Edward R. Murrow was published. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at britbox.com slash NPR. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, here with a promo for the latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode. It was just odd, I think, to be singing that song when I was so young, and the meditation was so big, it seemed like I hardly scratched the surface of it, so I never felt it was really successful. That's recent Grammy winner Joni Mitchell talking about her song Both Sides Now with Terry Gross in 2004. You can hear more from this interview and three different versions of that song by joining Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org. We're remembering Bob Edwards, the longtime host of NPR's Morning Edition, who died on Saturday. Terry interviewed Edwards a second time in 2004 about his book on Edward R. Murrow, the man he described as broadcast journalism's patron saint and first great star. They began with a reading from his book, Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism. Murrow's obituaries mentioned that he seemed a courtly prince who nevertheless championed the underdog, a sophisticated man with a common touch. Variety said he had brought television to maturity. He was hailed for his unrelenting search for truth. The tributes pointed out that he had led CBS to greatness, only to become expendable when his principles clashed with management. 
It fell to Merle's biographers, however, to explore some of the deeper contradictions in his life, including the black moods and day-long silences that frequently haunted a man who had so many reasons to be happy. The man who oozed confidence on the air was a nervous wreck when about to begin a broadcast. The shot of whiskey he'd have to calm his nerves at airtime failed to stop his cold sweat or keep him from jiggling his leg in a continuous nervous tick. America's foremost broadcast journalist put so much weight on his own shoulders that he could never be at peace. He was a driven man who demanded more of himself than he could possibly deliver. Murrow lived by a code too rigid for mere humans to meet. He expected more of himself and others. Murrow's glass was always half-empty. He felt the gloom of having his idealism shattered by reality. It's Bob Edwards reading from his new book, Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism. Bob, welcome back to Fresh Air. You were asked to write a book for this series of, of biographies. Why did you choose Edward R. Murrow as your subject? Were you aware of him in his own time as a broadcaster, or was it only after that that you started to be aware of him and admire him so much? Oh, no. I listened to him on the radio and saw him on television. I was a kid, and maybe I didn't understand uh, all of the nuances of his insights to the Eisenhower administration. (laughs) But on one level, uh, it was very easy to relate to him uh, being a kid. He was cool. He was so cool. He looked great. He sounded fabulous. And I wanted to do that because of him. Now, later, of course, I appreciated what he did and his McCarthy broadcast. And, uh, of course, all of his wartime reporting was before my time because I'm post-war. Um, and to, to get into those uh, into the transcripts of his broadcasts and see how he wrote and the imagery, which I'm no good at at all. I mean, he wrote beautiful word pictures, and and the sound of them. He was a speech major in college, and I think that helped a lot. When he spoke, it was theater. It was, oh, I just, <laughs> I just wanted to do that. You know? <laughs> now, Ed Morrow didn't set out to be a broadcaster. He was sent to Europe to arrange broadcasts by others for the Institute of International Education, which was part of the Carnegie Endowment. And even in his early days with CBS, he was supposed to arrange for newspaper reporters to actually do the reporting. Was it Murrow's idea to put himself on the air? No, I think it just kind of happened. And uh, New York didn't complain, and it was so successful that first broadcast in uh, the spring of, was it March of 1938, when the Nazis marched into Austria and annexed Austria. That's the real beginning of the war. And uh, they had to just go on the air and do a broadcast. Shire wasn't supposed to be on the air either. He was, a, he was, you know, Merle's man on the continent of Europe. Uh, and he was to arrange broadcasts. But out of this emergency, they, they became the genesis of the CBS overseas reporting staff. And they were so good at it that they just kept on reporting the war and adding these other newspaper reporters to the staff. One of Murrow's now famous broadcasts was part of a special program called London After Dark that CBS Radio broadcast on August 24th, 1940. He was reporting from Trafalgar Square. Um, What's the importance, do you think, of this particular broadcast? Uh, A couple of things. When when Hitler started bombing uh, England, he first um, chose military targets, bases and the docks and that sort of thing. 
And then he uh, upgraded it and just scatterbombed all over all the cities of, of England to terrify the population in hopes that they would ask Churchill to surrender and uh, you know, just stop this, stop this awful bombing. And Murrow was trying to illustrate that it wasn't working. And he was on, uh, he's at Trafalgar Square and he's recording people calmly walking to the bomb shelters, not running, not in a panic. He wanted that message out there. So he put the microphone down on the ground and recorded footsteps. He was very conscious of, of the, you know, for a guy with no background in either journalism or radio, he was conscious of the fact that he was writing for the ear and this, this broadcast was to reach you by ear, sound. So he would let you hear the footsteps of Englanders walking calmly to the bomb shelter. <laughs> I, I thought that was very prescient of him. He knew he was in radio. This was something different. This was not the printed page. It was for the ear. Well, why don't we hear some of that report by Edward R. Murrow, August 24th, 1940, from Trafalgar Square. This is Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid siren. I'm standing here just on the steps of St. Martin's in the Fields. A searchlight just burst into action off in the distance. One single beam sweeping the sky above me now. People are walking along quite quietly. We're just at the entrance of an air raid shelter here, and I must move this cable over just a bit so people can walk in. There's another searchlight just square behind Nelson's statue. That was Edward R. Murrow, recorded in 1940. My guest is Bob Edwards, who's written a new biography of Edward R. Murrow. Bob, you mentioned in your book that um, Murrow reported on the bomb shelters, but he didn't usually go to the bomb shelters himself. Why not? He was afraid that he would get used to it. <laughs> that whenever the bombs fell, he would go running for the shelter if he went that first time. So he would go and do stories of people in the shelters, but he would not go there to seek refuge from the bombs himself. He had enormous courage, uh, not just from bombs, but from other things that came along later, like McCarthy, or even his own bosses. But he would be up on the rooftop in the middle of the bombing of, of London, so he could report on it. And he would go around town in an open car so he could see the damage and report on the stories at, at ground level. Yeah, I, the, reporting from the rooftop, that really amazes me. You know, German bombers are flying overhead and he's on a rooftop in London reporting <laughs> on what, what he sees. That really takes courage. It must have been difficult to get permission to do that because he needed the permission of the British to do it. What was it like for him to get permission and what kind of guidelines did they lay down for him? Well, at first they didn't want him to do it at all um, because they thought that the Germans could hone in on him or use him as some kind of beacon or locator to direct bombing. Uh, he was on the, the rooftop of Broadcasting House, uh, a BBC building in London, uh, and they thought that uh, he would make that building a target. Well, <laughs> later on, I mean, <laughs> it got hit a bunch of times. And a lot of Murrow's uh, colleagues at the BBC were killed as a result. But on this particular night that he first went up there, uh, you know, it, he had mixed emotions about it. He was kind of ambivalent because, um, you know, it was, again, a live broadcast. And, and New York threw the signal to Murrow on that rooftop at, you know, probably 7 o'clock in the evening or something like that. 
um, New York time, five hours later in um, London. And all hell had been going on until a minute to air. And then the bombing stopped. <laughs> and he's thinking, you know, is this good or bad? Because they can't hear the bombs. They could hear the anti-aircraft fire, and you hear a lot of that. So you do get some war sounds, and you hear the uh, police whistles or the air raid warden whistles, and you hear sirens and the like, but you don't hear actual bombs. But he, he wanted the bang-bang, of course, because it was radio. And uh, the British government relented on uh, permission to uh, have Murrow on the rooftop, uh, and I think it was Churchill's doing personally, because Churchill wanted America to know what was going on and what Britons were taking from Hitler's Germany. Uh, this was good PR, propaganda, if you will, for, uh, for England. He was really appealing for help and using Merle to do that. But what was the impact of these broadcasts on Americans? And this is you know, before America entered the war. That's right. And they were enormously helpful to Churchill in England. And um, at one point, Roosevelt sent Harry Hopkins, his close aide, over to London. And he arranged a meeting with Murrow. And Murrow thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to get an interview with Harry Hopkins. This will be very useful. No, that wasn't it. <laughs> Hopkins wanted to interview Murrow. Murrow was the first guy he talked to uh, when he went to London before he talked to anyone in the British government. Why? Because he wanted to pick Murrow's brain. He wanted to know what was going on in England, who to see, who not to see, who was really in charge, who were the, the movers and shakers and players, and um, who had the best information on what was going on. That's, that's a tribute to Murrow's influence, command of information, that those broadcasts, I mean, that's what Roosevelt was hearing. He was hearing Murrow's broadcasts from the rooftop and everywhere else in London. Bob Edwards speaking with Terry Gross in 2004. The longtime host of NPR's Morning Edition died on Saturday. We'll hear more after a break. This is Fresh Air. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week, on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. After World War II, Murrow becomes vice president and director of public affairs at CBS. He assembles a news team. Most of them go on to become the, some of the most famous people in in broadcasting journalism. Um, he moves from radio to television, helps define what television news is. And then, of course, he's covering things during the McCarthy era. And one of the things he's asked to do at CBS is to sign a loyalty oath. And I think a lot of his... Colleagues were expecting him to refuse, but he didn't refuse. Why didn't he refuse? I think he picked his battles. 
And he thought that one was too big. And he could fight McCarthyism and the whole anti-communist hysteria in other ways, which he certainly did with his um, broadcast on See It Now, which was really the the end, the beginning of the end of, of Joe McCarthy and his demagoguery. What Murrow did was to assemble a whole bunch of film of McCarthy illustrating his methods. And that's that was a revelation to most Americans who only knew about this from newspapers. And newspapers can't give you a good account of this. Um, you know, Senator McCarthy said this, but somebody else said that. And, you know, you really don't get a flavor of, of what this guy was about and how he badgered people and... and just the unfairness of the whole um, prosecutorial process that he conducted and and how you were really guilty until proven innocent and, and you had no shot at proving your innocence. So that's what um, Murrow did, uh, exposed him in that way and then showed you a huge stack of newspapers and uh, representing editorials against McCarthy and another stack of newspapers, you know, that favored him, a much, much, much smaller stack. And then did his closing commentary, which was unlike anything television ever did before and certainly since. It was a one-of-a-kind, it was a blatant editorial and just devastating. And um, What did he say that was so devastating? Oh. No one familiar with the history of this country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigation and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind between the internal and external threat of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes which were for the moment unpopular. You know, Ed Bliss told me he was in New York once and uh, he saw someone coming at him that he thought this was not good this was this person was going to do him harm and he thought of crossing the street and mingling with a bigger crowd of people and getting away from this guy and he remembered Merle's words we will not walk in fear one of another so he didn't cross the street and he got mugged Oh, gee, what's the moral of that story? <laughs> the moral of that story. Uh, the moral of the story is uh, be a little more practical, right. and <laughs> a little less hero-worshipping. Well, that's, that's great. Um, so uh, did, what did CBS have to say about this? As you pointed out, this is, this is editorializing. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, they didn't promote the program. Um, Murrow and his co-producer and partner, uh, Fred W. Friendly, uh, bought they they used their personal money to buy a full page ad in the New York Times to uh, promote the program. CBS was not uh, pleased. Uh, of course, they said you know this was great and thank you so much, but they didn't <laughs> they didn't promote the program, and they didn't like controversy. Um, 
Bill Paley, the founding chairman of CBS, and Murrow were very close. They were they, they had a relationship that was not boss worker uh, forged during the war, but after the war, it was different. CBS became this big diversified company. Profits and the price of a share of stock were what was important, and um, they were in the entertainment business. And here was Murrow doing all these controversial programs. Paley told Murrow, "Your your programs give me stomach aches." And Murrow told Paley, "Well, it goes with the job." And ultimately, see it now, Murrow's great news vehicle was canceled. And Murrow was moved to the the margins of CBS because he was just too too controversial. Now you have the kind of voice that people describe as a, a, a great radio voice, and I'm wondering if your voice influenced your decision to go into radio, or whether that was just a kind of happy coincidence that you had such a great voice and you were interested in radio. I think it helped. Um, when I was a kid in school, they always called on me to read aloud. And um, Did you have a deep voice as a kid? Like before yeah. your voice changed, what did it yeah. sound like? <laughs> <laughs> I was always getting calls, people calling for my dad and thinking that I was him. Huh. And uh, no, no, you want my dad. <laughs> Let me get him. Um, in church, I was asked to read aloud. Um, so I think that helped. That gave me a lot of confidence and um, made me think, well, you know, I ought to find a career that, in which I can do this. <laughs> so so, so your voice did influence right, going into I radio? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, as a little kid, I always was intrigued by radio and loved radio and wanted to be in radio. And then Merle, you know, I wanted to be cool like Merle. And then reading aloud in, in class, and they would always call on me, and I could read pretty well. And, you know, kids have trouble reading aloud in class. I never did. I, I warmed. I was on. <laughs> and... Um, so, you know, put all that together. And then the 60s. The 60s definitely uh, um, focused me on news as opposed to any other jobs in broadcasting because look what was going on while I was in college from 65 to 69. Um, civil rights, cities were on fire, Vietnam, um, the Democratic Convention of 68, uh, assassinations of, uh, you know, Kennedy and King and... Uh, that was just such an awful... Yeah, the invasion of Czechoslovakia by the yeah, sure. Soviet Union. Sure. Um, I wanted to be um, part of the discussion, but not a participant, not a, not a partisan. Um, and news was the way that, um, that I could do that. Well, Bob, thank you. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. It's been great fun, Terry. Thank you. Bob Edwards speaking with Terry Gross in 2004. The longtime host of NPR's Morning Edition died on Saturday. He was 76. Coming up, John Powers reviews Perfect Days, the latest film by German director Wim Wenders. This is Fresh Air. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. 
We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Perfect Days is the latest film by the German director Wim Wenders, who's best known for 1980s hits like Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire. Perfect Days tells the story of a sanitation worker in Tokyo. It's one of five Oscar nominees for Best International Feature Film. Our critic at large, John Powers, says, Perfect Days fills you with a good feeling about life. One of the most famous scenes in Japanese cinema comes in Yasujiro Ozu's classic, Tokyo Story. A young woman named Kyoko is grumbling to her radiantly noble sister-in-law, Noriko, about how badly her siblings have been acting. Isn't life disappointing, Kyoko asks, to which Noriko replies calmly, yes, it is. Dealing with life's limitations is the theme of Perfect Days, the latest movie by Wim Wenders, the venerable German director for whom Ozu has long been an idol. Shot entirely in Tokyo, in Japanese, this elegant sentimental fable is Wenders' best fiction feature in decades. Although it flirts with glibness, Perfect Days asks questions about how to live in the face of need, loneliness, and disappointment. It centers on a 50s-ish looking bachelor, Hirayama, played by the great Japanese screen actor Koji Yakusho, whom you will know from Tempopo, Shall We Dance, and Memoirs of a Geisha. Hirayama's life may sound unbearably grim. He works cleaning public toilets in Tokyo. But before we go any farther, it's necessary to say that these toilets, all of them real, are spectacular. Some look like spaceships, others like country cottages. The most amazing ones have see-through walls that magically go dark when someone steps inside. You'll wish your town had toilets like these. Anyway, we quickly grasp that Hirayama is not unhappy. He lives a highly ritualized existence, whose routine we soon come to know. He wakes up, spritzes his plants, looks with pleasure at the morning sky, buys canned coffee from a nearby vending machine, and then drives his van off to work playing old music cassettes by the likes of the Kinks, Patti Smith, and Otis Redding, who's still sitting on the dock of the bay. Once he arrives at the toilets, he silently cleans them with the efficiency and care of an artisan, unlike his amiably feckless young colleague, Takashi. Even as those around him seem lonely or lost, Hirayama takes time to savor life's small beauties, sunlight tickling the trees, children laughing in a park, the invariably friendly greeting at the small luncheonette where he's a regular. He uses an old digital camera to photograph things that move or delight him. All of this is beautifully put across by vendors, with no small help from cinematographer Franz Lustig's crisp images of Tokyo, and the tautly seductive editing of Tony Froshammer, which draws you into the rhythms of a monkish man who appears to know how to live, as they say, in the moment. As he says, now is now. To be honest, Hirayama's days are a bit too perfect, starting with the fact that this handsome actor looks so good in his blue cleaner's uniform, and that the toilets he scrubs are suspiciously unsoiled. By the time we inevitably hear Lou Reed singing A Perfect Day, you may well wonder if Venders has sold himself on a disnified vision of zend-out simplicity, 
one fed by Western cliches about Japaneseness as a path to spiritual grace. I mean, try to imagine believing a story about a beatific toilet cleaner in Berlin or New York City. Against this naively sweetened portrait of menial work, vendors place shadowy images that suggest life's evanescence. And eventually someone does come along to shake up Hirayama's perfect routine, forcing both him and us to reconsider the life he's been leading. I won't give anything away, the movie's too delicate for that, but I will say that it builds to a scene in Hirayama's van that, to the strains of Nina Simone, thrilled me with its rush of shifting emotions and interweaving of light and dark. This scene is brilliantly performed by Yaksho. Although Hirayama rarely speaks, you see why he won Best Actor at Cannes. Open-faced and watchful, Yakujo couldn't be more touching as a man who's learned not merely to hold himself together amidst imperfect circumstances, but to find joy within them. We twice hear the song House of the Rising Sun, the old folk tune lamenting a life ruined by time spent in a house of ill repute. Yet the movie itself is no lament. Vendors once dreamed of being a priest, and here he nudges us toward transcendence. Constantly showing us daybreak over Tokyo, he reminds us that the true house of the rising sun is the world. But rather than bemoan the ways that the world is dark and disappointing, the film suggests that we find and appreciate the transient beauty around us. This may not make our days perfect, but it will make them better. John Powers reviewed the new film, Perfect Days. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, how New York City is struggling to cope with the surge of migrants from the southern border streaming into the city, many on buses sent by southern governors. More than 60,000 are in New York shelters, and the cost of their care is in the billions of dollars. We'll speak with the New York Times' Andy Newman, who's covering the crisis. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor, State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it isn't just your business, it's your life. Whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. State Farm agents are small business owners, too, and know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. 
Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.